0: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, Mom. First things first,
1: thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say
0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show.
1: Once I became comfortable on stage, I started kind of peeling the layers off and and really showing my true self of who I really am and kind of how I act around the house. Not that I'm walking around the house going, What? But, uh, you know. But even though you say that is funny. But I would have never done that, what I just did 10 years ago. Why is that? Not comfortable with myself, not confident in myself. What do you think changed that allowed you to be more yourself? I know my point of view. And once you get the point of view down, I think a lot of it is so much easier because now you have a point of view you're talking through, opposed to just kind of trying to find yourself on stage. And that's just time. It was like eight years in, I felt like, oh, right. now I'm starting to feel like Sebastian Mascalco on stage. And, and then it, that translates to all aspects of life. Uh, just being yourself. It's just a little bit more freeing now that I know who I am. I know myself and I'm very confident in what I'm doing. And it's kind of bled into all aspects of my life. So for someone
0: listening to this and saying to themselves, you know, I might not want to be a stand-up comedian, but I want to be myself like this guy is talking about how can someone learn a little bit more how to be a little more authentic in their daily interactions. So excited to have one of my favorite comedians, Sebastian. I'm gonna, I'm I hope I don't brutalize your name. Sebastian Maniscalco. You got
1: it. You got it. So
0: uh you also, your your book just came out, Stay Hungry. I got it in advance, I read it, it's excellent. It's well, the thanks. story of your career, basically. Yeah. And you've had a fascinating career. It's like, you know, I've interviewed a lot of comedians on here, and your career is a hundred percent different from any other comedian that I've had
1: on here. Well, I don't know anybody else's other story, but for me, it was, uh, what, 1998, I moved out to Los Angeles from Chicago, not knowing anything, not knowing anybody, just knowing I wanted to do stand-up comedy, didn't know really how to get into it, and uh, entered a stand-up comedy class, and boom, right from there, uh, kind of got my feet wet with... Um, kind of how to behave on stage a little bit and then uh worked at the four seasons hotel to supplement my income and
0: and while you were at the four seasons hotel you like in between i don't even understand how you would do it like while you were serving tables you'd you'd cut out for uh, a set at the at the comedy store like and then get back to the four seasons
1: yeah so it'd be similar to this like i would have a section of five or six tables at the four seasons and then i would like Uh, Make sure all the water was filled. Everybody had their dinner or whatever they were eating. And then I would skip to the comedy store and I would do my set. And then I would come back and just pick up the tables where I left off. Uh, How far was the comedy store from the four uh, seasons? It was eight-minute drive. Oh, my gosh. So pop in the car, race up there. The whole reason I did that is... I never wanted to miss a set because I didn't know who was going to be in the audience that night. I saw a comedian by the name of Freddie Soto one night go up on stage and Mark Anthony was in the audience who was a singer and still is. uh, And he picked Freddie Soto to go and open up for him on the road. So it's like, I thought if I ever missed an opportunity like that, who knows? It could be a director. It could be whoever in the audience.
0: But also, it seems like you had this enormous work ethic even before that. You described uh, several kind of even just odd jobs you had before that, plus your work ethic at the Four Seasons. You were very uh, almost fastidious of every single job. It doesn't sound like you were ever uh, disrespectful of any job, no matter how low or or high. And I think that uh, applied over to comedy. So it's not like you were performing badly at all these other jobs because you were this screwball comic and then you're just you know fastidious about that it seems like that was all throughout your career
1: yeah so the whole uh, work ethic was instilled in me as a young kid I mean I, I had I was cutting lawns when I was a kid to make extra money I uh, worked at Fuddruckers I worked at Olin Mills Portrait Studio I was drop, dressing up as Captain Morgan And going into bars and passing out shots, so nothing. I took uh, any job I ever took. I ever I really really respected the work and needed the money, and and wasn't shameful or bashful at all about you know making a dime. Um, I just my my parents were charging me rent right after college. I was paying three hundred bucks a month to live in the house I grew up in. (laughs) So there was uh, those those lessons early on kind of instilled in me that you have to be able to. Provide for yourself. And you're right. It kind of mirrored itself with comedy. I'm like, if I want to do this, I got to get up on stage four or five nights, at uh, four or five times a night. To four or five times a night? I would try, yeah. I would try to bounce around like whoever uh, was having a show. Like if, if you were doing a show, I would get in touch with you. I, you know, I'd do your seven o'clock. Then I'd go bounce and do a eight o'clock over at Dublin's. And there was a sushi house at the time called Miyagi's that had comedy.
0: And Dublin's was, was one of those places that... Also seem to attract a lot of talent, you know, and yep. that's where you met a lot of people. That's what you met, uh, Andrew Dice Clay. Where you, you, that did give you an opportunity. You went on the road with him. Or is, that, is that where you met Andrew Dice or is no, that where you met Vince
1: Vaughn? Uh, Vince Vaughn at uh, Dublin's and then Andrew I met at uh, the comedy store. Right, right. So again, you go out, you have to put yourself out there in order to kind of be in the mix because again, you don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know who you're going to start talking to. Next thing you know, boom. If I wasn't at the comedy store that one night and Dice Clay uh, was there, I would have never gotten the opportunity to go out on the road with him. Vice versa with the uh, with the Dublin's. I met Vince Vaughn in the back of Dublin's. If I never put myself out there, you never create these opportunities for yourself. So my whole thing was, I never got into this business for money at all. That was not what I got into uh, comedy for. It was my goal was when I moved out, I wanted to do stand up comedy for a living, and that's it. I just wanted to pay the bills.
0: And and so so let, let me address that, and I hope I don't embarrass you with it, but like so just for some some statistics first you've done three showtime comedy specials right and um but really the main way you're you're i would say you're probably one of the most successful road comics ever like that's pure road meaning you, it's not like you have this massive tv platform and then you get paid 20 million by netflix you're out there on the road i think i read you do a hundred shows a year on the road
1: yeah, that's how I established the the comedy. Uh, as far as I didn't, you're right. I didn't have any TV. I didn't have any film to back up my uh, my road work. Normally, some of these comedians they have a big TV show and they tour off the popularity of the TV show.
0: And, and not that that's bad or good. It's it, no. that,
1: but it's almost like in a a more pure way.
0: Like you didn't let anybody, like you didn't let any network executive deem you the next prince of comedy. You kind of just. I want to explore this. You kind of like. Did it on your own and to the point, and this is maybe the embarrassing part. Forbes lists you as making fifteen million dollars last year just from uh, road shows. I mean, I'm trying to think of other comedians. Maybe Bill Burr is like that a little bit. Uh, there's not that many comics I could think like that uh, have that where it's purely they just they built their career on their own, you know, hands and feet. I don't know what the expression is, but they without any. It's not like that. It was without any help. But you again. You know, like I would say, and this doesn't put down their comedies at all, but like Amy Schumer, who's who's great, but she had the TV show Inside Amy Schumer. She had the comedy roast on Comedy Central. You have uh, Louis C.K. with the show Louis, and and his specials were were hitting big before then. You you were kind of like it's almost like every road show you did, you added ten more people, and yeah, then you right. did just thousands of road shows in the past ten years.
1: That's how it happened. So, uh, two thousand five, I told my agent, I go get me out there. I don't give a I don't I don't care what it is, you can where it is. By the way. Yeah, I didn't I didn't want to say anything. Uh, I didn't want to swear, but um I said, get me out there. I don't care if it's a week in Las Vegas, 14 shows. I don't care if it's uh, seven shows, three on three on Saturday in Des Moines, Iowa. Just get me out there. Let me not only uh, develop a fan base, but develop my my comedy because you get really good doing seven hours of comedy over a weekend, opposed to like, you know, New York City, you get 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. I was doing nice hour headlining sets, developing the material. And then what I would do is after the show was over, I don't care how many people were in the audience, it could have been 15 people, I would sit by the door and I would shake everybody's hand and thank them for coming. Uh, when I do comedy, I feel like people are coming to my house and I, I'm i the host. Mm. And not only that because. You coming out to see me, right? It's 20, 20 bucks at the comedy clubs, right? It's two drink minimum. You got to get a babysitter. All this stuff that goes into comedy means a lot for me that somebody took a sliver of their uh, a night out of their year to come spend it with me. So if you're gonna do that, I'm gonna thank you for coming and shake your hand. If they wanted a photo, we'd we'll take a photo. And it was just more of an organic thing that I just kind of grew up with. Like you, you, you thank people for coming out and. Uh, you're right, 15 people on a Thursday one year. The next time I came back on a Thursday, it was 80 people because they went and told their friends. So that happened year after year after year until we graduated from the clubs and start going into larger venues, and that's kind of what you're seeing now in the last three years. It's just a culmination of all those road gigs uh, everywhere in the country just building the fan base.
0: Because it's amazing. It's not like even you have this huge social media following no, it's like it, it's like you right <laughs> <laughs> so so and that's not bad like it kind of sh- underlines that it still goes back to raw you know talent word of mouth touching the fans, and and them telling their neighbor, hey, um, I went last year, now I'm going this year, you want to come? And uh, and building up that way.
1: Yeah, it's almost like uh, it was the 80s when there was no social media. It was like word of mouth, an and actual word of mouth, not like, hey, this guy's funny. Listen, I've had uh, some success online with a couple videos going viral, but uh, if you look at the people that are coming out to my shows, it's... It's middle class people. Uh, it's people who have families. Uh, they have a little bit of uh, disposable income to spend on tickets, and uh, those people, typically, at least, at least from my friends back in Chicago, I got I got about five or six buddies back in Chicago. They ain't they ain't checking their Instagram. They ain't checking their Twitter. They're busy. They're working. They're raising a family. So. Uh, my social media numbers do not match at all the numbers that are coming out to see my shows. I so, mean, if you look at my Instagram, it's got like half a million people, and I'm going to Toronto and I'm playing in an 18,000 seat arena on Thursday night. It just it does it doesn't make sense.
0: Right. So how do how do those 18,000 people in in Toronto how do they even hear that you were gonna appear? And because so many people are focused on social media, like and that's where people consume their news now. How do people even hear that you were gonna be in Toronto?
1: Well, they hear it through social media, but when I, what what it's like, one person hears it, and then they tell the people in their family, and then those people tell other people. It's almost like a telephone, you know, like people are just calling other people, "Hey, he's coming." Da, da 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 da, and that's the way it works for me. It's not so much that the people that are consuming a lot of YouTube videos necessarily are the people that are coming to my shows. It's more. Uh, like I said, people that might see a video here and there, but are not living online.
0: So, so uh, I mean, even, so you're doing Radio City Music Hall in April, five nights, right? Mm-hmm. I think you sold out in 30 minutes after yeah, five the- Five
1: shows. We didn't know how many to add. I, did, I didn't want to do too many, but I wanted to do just enough because we're filming a special there, April 21st. So we put, uh, and I think two on sale at, at first, and then they went fast. We put another two, and then we put another one, and we could have kept going, but- you know, New York City is one of my biggest markets, and I didn't want to. Uh, because like
0: be- all of Brooklyn, it probably goes to see you. <laughs>
1: everywhere, everywhere, it's Brooklyn, it's Staten Island, it's Long Island, it's uh, Manhattan, it's Bronx, it's it's, uh, and it's just not a, It's not only Italian people. I don't want to make it sound like my only clientele is Italian. It's yeah. it's. Um, it's people that grew up kind of in that environment. You could be Spanish, you could be Jewish, you could be a Greek, and and you could kind of relate to an Im- immigrant upbringing. You could be African American and have a father like I had. You know, like it, it's not specific to just one culture. It just so happens that some of the things I talk about are very specific in the Italian community, and the Italians have seemed to really gravitate towards. My material, just because it's very familiar, and uh, they feel like they grew up with me. I mean, every time I talk to these people, they're like, "Did you grow up in our house?" You're talking about my father, like you know him, and uh, that for me has been a, a big key in my material is that that uh, that nuance of of comedy that kind of uh, is very specific in in that type of family.
0: Look, well, I, I wanna I wanna talk about that nuance in two different ways because I think being uniquely you is part of the reason the word of mouth spreads because when I watch your comedy and you, you talk about this a little in the book where, you know, you sort of say, okay, it's really started to take off when you found your real voice and talking about like your, 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 your personal life, your family, everything. And then I watch the comedy and it's very personal. It's, it's almost like these, instead of like classic premise punchline, although you'll, ha- you'll have those, it's these exaggerated, almost not quite stereotypes but exaggerated situations that you've been through where you're you're very physical you know you're moving around you're making all the accent, you know italian american accents but it's so exaggerated it's funny and people recognize it at the same time
1: yeah so yeah you you have
0: both the exaggeration and the relatability and that and and the personal so it's like these three things but not the classic premise punchline
1: yeah there's no like like You're right. There's no like, uh, set-up punch. Like, I'm not sitting there at my house writing these jokes out. I'm basically living the material and then uh, presenting it on stage where I'm acting it out in a way where... Uh, very exaggerated acting out. Yeah. I mean, it's very big. It's very theatrical. It's very facial. And uh, I always loved physical-type uh, humor, John Ritter being one of my inspirations, not really a stand-up at all, but just the way he kind of moves his body and quick, unexpected movements that are very funny, uh, not clown-like, but very like exaggerated and, and just quick and kind of catch you off guard. Uh, I always kind of really enjoyed his physical humor along with... You know, uh, the material uh, being observational-based, uh, Seinfeld and Carlin, Richard Pryor, all all three of those guys kind of watched growing up. Brian but, Regan.
0: Right, so, so can I ask you like a specific example? So there's one joke, which I'm going to bastardize because I'm just saying the joke. But it's um, it was in your show, I think it was the most recent Showtime special or the one before that. Um, your wife's father is dead. You're visiting the grave. He bought the plot next to it for his wife who is currently remarried yeah so that's the premise essentially and so you're there wondering and it's a very common thing to wonder uh like a great observation which is like is she gonna use this she's remarried If she's not gonna use it it's paid for should you use it like so it's it's almost punchy when you start to suggest if you use it but what's really happening while you're saying this joke is you're, all, you're looking backwards. You're looking forwards. Your hands are waving all around. You're, it's very physical, and people are, people are, A, noticing that, yeah, that's an interesting question. It's an interesting observation, so they're thinking about it, and then it's funny just the way you're presenting it.
1: Well, yeah, you could just say the joke like you just did and not act it out, but what I want to do is- and, But then
0: it wouldn't be funny. Like I, I'm just making an observation, and it's not funny if you, just, if you yeah, don't act it out. It could, no,
1: it, it could be funny. You could get like a, a chuckle. Uh, if you just said it that way, or if I just said it that way, but what I want to do is I want to take the audience member to the cemetery with me, right? And walk up to the grave, and I think I take a knee in the bit, and I do like the sign of the cross, and I'm like weeping. But at this time, I'm weeping. I'm thinking about what you just said about you know who's using this plot, you know, and and it adds another dimension when you start transporting people from where they're at because a lot of people might think about it, like they, they listen to a joke, they might think about it, and they create it in their own head, but I want them to let me do that for them, and they they could actually see me at the cemetery. So it's like these little mini scenes I want to create on stage at, as opposed to having them formulate an idea of what that might look like.
0: Right, because it's an interesting observation because there's all, there's. all it's layered in the sense that it's almost like this post-mortem betrayal like the wife's plot is going somewhere else now so there's there's a little bit of tension in there that the audience can relate to and and they're and they're thinking of it maybe in the way that most people think about it is okay that's an that's something that's unusual but I'm not going to say anything meanwhile you're like a megaphone magnifying the unusual characteristics of this, and that releases the tension perhaps in a way that they can laugh at because it's almost so exaggerated.
1: Yeah, but when I say the bit, when I when I say in that particular bit, I am thinking that nobody in the audience would ever think the, the way I'm thinking about this. They would go to the cemetery, they would say a prayer, and they would go home. Right. I'm thinking that I'm the only guy in the room that thinks this way, and that's kind of how I sell it if I think you think this way I ain't gonna sell the joke because mm-hmm. I don't have to convince you you already know the way my mind works is I, I, I kind of preface it by saying that I'm thinking about things that really nobody else is really thinking about it but when I mention it to you you go yeah where is she gonna get buried <laughs> right so uh, that's the way I kind of sell these jokes because if I sell it like I think you know it already it doesn't come off and it doesn't hit as hard as it would if if I, I think uh, everybody else uh, knows about it. But but take just that,
0: like what you just did. You made a voice when you, when you said that as opposed to just making an observation. It was observation plus funny mm-hmm. voice. So there is this process it seems you go through, which is, okay, th- you're probably constantly noticing observations in family life and your past history and so on. And then layering on top of that, kind of the uh you know the act out and and maybe some exaggerated motions and then you have you have like the funny voice and all of that together does everybody in the audience is laughing at that yeah, point yeah. so it's not, again it's not like the classic um I you know Rodney field like, boom, pump, you know, punchline. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 interesting, the, the process. I don't know if you think of it that way or...
1: I don't really think of it. I, it's not like I set out to do this. i didn't say one day, man, I'm going to get really physical on stage. I'm going to really put a lot of facial expression in my face or I'm going to uh, fluctuate my voice here and there. It's almost kind of a thing that happened organically. Once I became comfortable on stage, I started kind of peeling the layers off and... And really showing my true self of who I really am and kind of how I act around the house. Not that I'm walking around the house going what, <laughs> but uh, you know. But even though you say that is funny, but I would have never done that, that. What I just did in an interview ten years ago. Huh. You know why is that? I, be, uh, not comfortable with myself, not confident in myself that that might be funny, or uh, even even interviewing, even going on these TV shows that I've been on today. I noticed that. What I was doing on these TV shows, I would have never been able to do ten years ago because I would have not allowed. I would have been editing myself. What What do you think changed
0: at some point? So you've been doing comedy, let's say for, for twenty years almost, or maybe more, maybe less. Twenty. Twenty. So, uh, what do you think changed around year ten that allowed you to be more yourself, both in terms of se- talking about your personal life and in terms of like this almost persona that you that you're comfortable with now?
1: Yeah, it was just that comfortability on stage. That knowing whatever I kind of uh, play through this instrument is going to be funny because I've honed the instrument so so much over time that I know that uh, whatever whatever I might be talking about, it could go spin class with my wife. It could be going on an airplane. It could be me going to a tech business, which I recently did to see how people behave now in the new. Uh, work environment. I used to work at United Airlines when uh, 1996, and there was cubes. You sat in a cube and you went home. Now you go to a business and you know, people are running on a treadmill, typing an email. There's ping pong in the commissary. You know, it looks like camp. So anything that I put, kind of put through this filter, I know my point of view. And once you get the point of view down, I think a lot, a lot of it is so much easier because now you have a a a a point of view you're talking through opposed to just kind of trying to find yourself on stage and just you know when i first started i was completely angry i was not likable i didn't laugh at myself on stage nobody was in on the joke you know the way i think is a little absurd but i made it sound like i was talking at the audience rather than like hey Everybody else outside this room is crazy. We're the normal ones, you know. Like I, I was talking at the audience, like they were the problem. So again, that's just time. It takes time to kind of feel comfortable on stage. And after uh, two thousand five, it was like eight eight years in. I felt like, oh, right now I'm starting to feel like Sebastian Mascalco on stage uh, rather than a. Uh, a copy of of him and in, in some distorted way so uh and and then it, that translates to all aspects of life uh just being yourself like i i was a little bit more introverted when i first started doing comedy even when i would check into a hotel i didn't really talk to the anybody i would just head down it you know get the key and, you know now i come in hey how you doing how's it going it's just a little bit more freeing now that i know who i am i know myself and i'm very confident in what i'm doing. And it's kind of bled into all aspects of my life.
0: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And... I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and while I'm away, and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely got to use hims from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You are getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the hims app, track progress and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims. HIMS.com slash James. Can you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Like for someone listening to this and saying to themselves, you know, I might not want to be a stand-up comedian, but I want to be myself. Like this guy is talking about how can someone learn a little bit more how to be a little more authentic in their daily interactions like is there a way to kind of skip part of those 10 years if, even if you're not going on stage 7 times a night
1: uh, whatever it is it doesn't have to be stage it could be whatever you're doing uh, and i think over time you'll begin to you know peel those layers off whether you want you want to be an entrepreneur you want to be a musician you want to be a teacher whatever it is i'm sure when you come out of college and you're teaching a class uh, you're not the same person as you are when you're 40 years old teaching that same class because you have all that experience to draw from. So, I don't think there's shortcuts. I don't think you skip 10 years. It's you gotta you gotta go through the 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 time and the pain and, and, and to really find out who you are. And it it doesn't have to be, like I said, I'm just speaking because I went on stage to do it. But if you're a businessman, it's like, you got to be in there at uh, six o'clock in the morning, pounding the pavement, trying to, uh, to make money. And, uh, and again, it might not happen a year two, three, four years, but if you feel passionate about it, the whole thing is, passion you got to feel passion what you're doing if you didn't feel passion and doing these uh, these three t- three times a week you're doing this right you i i would tell if you're not passionate about it i could tell right away that you really care about this thing you took time to read the book there's a lot of people that don't even read the book or they read a couple pages or they'll get like a synopsis or whatever the the fact that you know you took some time and, and did some research tells me that the guy's passionate about what he's doing so you can't really substitute that passion in anything that you're doing so what I would advise these people out there that are listening to your show if they have a passion and then they want to be themselves and, and whatever you got you got to go out there and 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 work i mean like, there's no i wish I had like a magic formula to tell you yeah by twenty six you could be doing uh you could be headlining theaters across the country it's just it might happen but uh i don't know
0: so, so 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 let me ask in a slightly different way. Not, in, not is there a way to skip it? But let's say you did build up authenticity. I don't know in your cubicle at, you know, United Airlines or whatever. Could you then translate that authenticity into another area? Let's say you want to reinvent yourself, and now you want to be in another area of life. A lot, a lot of people reinvent them, want to reinvent themselves at age forty or fifty or whatever. Could you? Could someone say, oh, I've. Um I I've, I've really gone as far as I can in this area. I'm I'm really myself, but now I want to do something else.
1: Yeah, if you redirect that same passion to whatever you want to do, whatever career that is. Do you think
0: that would be faster in terms of like, let's say, you know, going on stage or or doing something more creative or being a writer or whatever?
1: Um I don't, I'm not sure I understand the question. In, what in what terms do you mean of, by faster? In terms of you you
0: you spent 10 years going up on stage, learning this persona and, and learning this authenticity for to be a stand-up comedian. Um, let's say now you wanted to go into some area, like you wanted to be an actor or you wanted to be, well, you are a writer. Do you think that the, the skill set
1: yeah. translates? Yes. So I could never have been a writer without the experience I had as a stand-up comedian because some uh,
0: writers might say, oh you needed to write five books before you could write this book yeah I but
1: mean, you know authors that do this for a living say, what do you know about writing you do stand-up comedy you don't write books I write books but I have 20 years of experience doing something that now is translated that passion is translated this is not such a far departure from stand-up comedy These are funny stories that now written written down on, on paper. Rather than me telling, these are stories that I tell. But now I just happen to write them down in a book. So it's not like I went from being a stand-up comedian, but now I want to do heart surgery. That's a whole other thing. Now you right. got to start at level one and then go up. But you know these these little branches that come off these acting, the book, or podcasting, or whatever. It's not that far of a departure from what I'm doing to begin with. So yeah, I mean, if you stay close to where you're at, uh, I think a lot of other things are like this are possible. But if you want to do something completely different, again, you got to, you know, like look at, look at Michael Jordan, he, when he went from basketball to baseball, he had to start in the minor. He didn't cross over and go right to the White Sox. He had to start at the, at the bottom and work his way, way up. Helps to be an athlete. That's, that's what he had going for him. But the skill set wasn't as as great as to get him into the uh, major leagues.
0: Well, what, what I love so much about talking to stand-up comedians and successful stand-up comedians is that. Most people don't realize how it's, it's like the hardest skill ever. Like you could be, I mean, because there's not just one skill. It's not just about being funny. It's about understanding the crowd. It's about likability. It's about uh, doing these, you know, different types of act outs in, in a joke. Uh, there's so many of these sub skills. Like what, what were skills that you were developing even like, I don't know, in the past five years that surprised you as new skills that you had to learn?
1: Um, new skills that I had to learn. Um, well, recently I had to learn to play to larger audience on a consistent basis. Uh, when you go to a 3000 seat theater, it's a lot different. I mean, the intimacy is kind of not there. I mean, when you're in a comedy club, you're literally feeling the person dying, laughing in, in, in front of you. And you could feel that you feed off of it. And in the theater, it's a little bit different because a little further away, uh, the ceilings are higher the laughter might get lost sometimes you think you're not doing as good as you are because you're not really hearing the laughter as you would in a small comedy club so there's an adjustment period that happens when you start jumping from these smaller venues to these larger venues so i kind of had to learn to play the jokes a little bit uh first of all even even bigger because now you're in a bigger space you know i mean i i I'm not. I'm not. uh We're sitting down, right? I'm not. I'm talking to you. I'm not going to act out my material as, or if I'm going to do an act out talking to somebody, it's not going to be big here because it doesn't need to be. But yeah, you have to. You have to learn that even when you do a big movement in a smaller room, it doesn't even look right because it's like if I if you're on a little small stage like this, and I'm like I'm moving around up there like like an animal, it, it just it doesn't translate. Like why is this guy so? Why is he so big for the room? You know, you kind of have to adjust your material and your uh, facial expressions and your act outs to the size of the room. So that's one thing I had to, to kind of learn. Uh, other than that, um, you know, you have to learn the business of this too. Uh, there's a side of it where you just think a lot of comedians think, "Oh, you know, if I'm funny, I thought this when I was when I was in what four or five years. I'm like, I got like 45, 50 minutes of material. Why am I not headlining clubs? Well." because I can't draw no people there. You know, the the comedy club owner is not going to tell you to come and you got nobody in the seats. They got to pay the rent, they got to pay the electricity bill and and you got to understand that as a comedian that like this is not like fun and everybody goes up and does their comedy sets and it's just it's just not like that. So you have to you have to and take this seriously too. You got to promote. You got to come down. You got to do the podcast. You got to go on the uh, the TV and 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 get people to come there. And when I used to do radio at six o'clock in the morning, the guy used to pick me up and he, oh, I bet you hate this. No, I, I don't hate it. I'm I'm promoting my show. Why would I hate telling people that I'm coming to their city and have them come out? What's the hate about that? Why? Because mm-hmm. I'm up at six o'clock in the morning. Big deal. You know, it's again. This is like the work ethic, the staying hungry. That's why I got the book. uh, That's why I entitled the book, Stay Hungry. It's like, you got to have that appetite to want this bad. And once you get to the, the level that I am, you still have to stay hungry to stay there. You know, if I, if I, if I, Figured now, hey, I'm I'm doing 18,000 people on a Thursday night. I got this. No, what my thing is, those 18,000 people that are coming to Toronto on Thursday night, I want to give them such a good show that they leave out of there and they tell another 18,000 people, you got to see this guy when he comes back. Because my biggest fear, and I a lot of people are like positive. You hear a lot. I'm sure you interview a lot of people that they're like so positive. They're always thinking, hey, this is positive. F- I live in the fear of no one coming to a show ever again. So that fear is what drives me. It's not the fear of, uh, it's not the, like, it's not like, uh, I, I see The Rock a lot on Instagram and he, the guy is like smiling. He's like, what's going on? Everybody's excited. Isn't it? that? That guy's like a positive guy. It's not that I'm not positive. It's just like, I am so fearful of losing what I have Gained. that's what drives me to to keep going, to keep writing new material, to hoping these people come back to these shows. It's not so much a positive. It's more like a living in a, in a negative space.
0: Well, I think actually there's a lot of research that shows that's actually better for success. Now, The Rock, of course, is an exception for a lot of reasons, but uh, uh, let's say your, your uh, positive goal is to lose a lot of weight and look great and then you'll be happy. Well, the problem with that is you might achieve... Those goals and then not be happy, and so you then you kind of are soured forever on the notion of positive thinking. Whereas if you think to yourself, "Oh, I better not eat this food because I'll get sick and die younger and be miserable and That's whatever," I'm yeah, that that actually drives you more to not eat the food as opposed to the positive visualization.
1: It's funny you bring that up because I recently I've gone through that. Like I recently had a baby ten months ago, and I, I gained a lot of weight last year eighteen pounds to be exact and I'm, I'm thinking to myself. I don't want to keep doing this because I don't. I want my daughter to have a father for a good portion of her life. Not that I was going to die, but that fear of death or that fear of not being healthy or maybe having a heart attack stop me from, you know, eating at one o'clock in the morning and going out and whatnot and leaning a cleaner lifestyle. And, you know, I'm going to work out tonight. Actually, I would never work out at night uh, last uh, last year, but. Now I'm dedicated to you know I got a I didn't have a purpose before but now I got even more of a responsibility to to be healthier. When you're single and, and you don't have a family and you don't you know you're kind of living and floating through life, you, you don't have anybody that you have to be accountable for. But when you have a wife and you have a child, then life becomes a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to say serious, but it's like you you know you have a little I have a little meatball at home depending on me, so I, I have to be. Have to be right for her um, you know when
0: you started let's say 10 years ago you started getting more personal and this is this relates to having a daughter um, how are you how, is your family comfortable with you kind of telling all these stories on stage I imagine most of them are true or related to the truth uh, was that ever an issue yeah I mean but your, your wife uh, Lana sounds like she's very supportive of your career she's involved in it um, so maybe there was this somewhere in the middle.
1: Yeah, the personal stuff tends to. Listen, I haven't had any problem with my family at all, except for one joke that I can't tell. But uh, how come you can't tell it? Because it's my mother told me don't don't talk about it. <laughs> that was that was the one thing she said. Just like just leave that alone. Um, my my wife's family has been very very lenient on letting that, me talk about them. There's a lot more that I want to do, but it's one of those things where I want to be invited back <laughs> to Thanksgiving dinner over there. You know, it's like, you got to write, you know, the difference between my wife's family and my, and my family, my family, you could rip to shreds, right? And everybody's got thick skin my wife's side of the family they're a little uh, sensitive so they not, might not be able to laugh at themselves uh, as as we do on my side so yeah I, I you know i i make fun of the families but uh, you got to draw the line somewhere um and i think i know where the line is and so so um
0: when you were starting and you were starting to realize like oh okay i'm not i keep doing all these angry jokes but i'm not angry uh, and and you probably weren't very likable. What uh, to the audience because you were so angry? Even they were they, they were like, "Who's this angry guy?" Uh, what were, I mean, what were some of the kind of techniques or or whatever you used to become more likable on stage to have more do more crowd work or have more control over the audience? Like, what were the what were the sort of initial skills you started working on other than just the basic humor?
1: Well, I was told that I was angry from a comedian. I talk about it in the book that a com- comedian came up to me after I did a set and said, you're way too angry, not likable up there. And she was a veteran comedian, so I took it to heart. So I went home, I started evaluating the tapes. I used to tape my sets. I audio record them now, but I used to tape my sets and watch them back, and I go, wow, this, I am angry. I, there's there's some adjustments that need to be made. But again, it's not like I went up the next day and completely got rid of all the anger. It, it takes a while to then you know, just... Going on stage and, and getting heckled and having four people in a night on a Saturday at 1.30 in the morning, uh, I went to Saudi Arabia. I played in front of 300 women who had veils on. You know, they laugh? Uh, I heard them. I didn't see it. Uh, but all these experiences play into your ability to be so comfortable on stage that nothing could be able to phase you, and you could be your entire self up there without worrying about How you're gonna handle anything? When I first started, I got heckled. I didn't even acknowledge the guy was heckling. I mean, this guy was heckling me bad. I didn't even acknowledge. I it just kept plowing through my set because I I felt if I acknowledged him, I was gonna forget where I was gonna go. I couldn't pick it back up. But again, that just takes time to deal with those people. To deal with a heckler, not here. Even heckling is one of those things. Hey guys, I could hear you. I'm doing something. I'm kidding <laughs> um uh it's one of those things where even heckling if you come hard at a heckler the audience will go whoa this guy you can't can we laugh like you have to be kind of even though you're angry that the guy's heckling you or maybe he's being disruptive here like that right i i could hear them right now i could address that a couple of ways i turned around and i said hey you mind and then and then I made them laugh, so I got my point across, right? But I made them laugh at the end, so everybody they shut up. But I don't come off as like an asshole.
0: Right, and you have you actually, I like the techniques you have. Some some you have you have a breakout section with how to deal with different types of hecklers because there are many different varieties mm-hmm. of the breed. Like the drunk heckler, you say, um, you know, something like, "Aren't you ashamed of yourself right no, now?" Aren't or? You? Yeah,
1: aren't you embarrassed? That yeah. was like one of my titles to my act and. If you come to my show and somebody's misbehaving, and I say, "Aren't you embarrassed?" the whole crowd, you know, turns on that person and because they know the the saying is mine, and and that's one. And it's way. really
0: relatively safe; it's not attacking. No, like if it's a drunk woman, for instance, which you really can't, you know, audience will turn on you for uh, attacking a woman in any way. It's a, it's almost a safe way to sort of put them to the side and separate them from the audience.
1: Drunk woman, no. Uh, I I disagree. A, a drunk yeah. woman is always a problem, and the audience will get behind you 110% if you get rid of that person. No one, men and women, no one want to hear drunk and, and loud in an audience. So we get the, we get rid of these people quick. It's like you can't, even, you can't even banter with one of these people. You could banter with a guy and says something, a girl says something, you say it back. But a lot of times people can't even hear it in the audience. Right. So what are you going to do? you Are going to go back and forth with somebody that, that no one could even hear? It's not even worth it. So uh, and my crowds are really polite and nice. I don't really deal with a lot of hecklers anymore, but in the beginning I did.
0: Do you, do you do any, I mean, right now you do a show, or let's say when you're building up, not in the past three years, but before that, when you were going from like 40 people in Akron, Ohio to 80 people in Akron, Ohio to 160. Mm-hmm. Were you doing anything like collecting email addresses or? I used to hand out
1: uh, cards at the end of the show, right? The, uh, postcards. I have all my social media on there, have my email. I also had a thing where you could write down your email if you wanted to be on my mailing list. So, yeah, when I would go to my car at the end of the night, did I see 80% of the flyers littered throughout the the parking garage yes but those 20 people or the 20 percent that took it home to me it's like those 20 percent. at least those people are going to take it home and maybe follow me who knows so it's all this like little guerrilla style marketing techniques i used to sell my dvds after the show the whole thing behind that was yeah did i want to make a little extra money yeah you're not going to get rich off it but i wanted them to take the dvd home share it with the buddy that buddy take it to his parents and then have the dvd this is when dvds were were, you know, popular. They're not so much popular now, but they spread the word through the DVD. It's a little piece of marketing material that I thought that if I sold this after the show that people would share it. And so you started 20 years ago. You finally
0: quit your job at the Four Seasons in 2005, 7 years later, yeah. to go on the road. And uh at any po- and then and then as you mentioned, it's been the past 3 years you've really noticed the big change. It was almost like a tipping point. So at any point, what, what was the most frustrating moment during this period? Because you didn't—you mentioned in the book—you did not give yourself a deadline. You because uh, because deadlines almost setting yourself up for failure. Because if if you say five years, but it, the natural course is twenty years, you're gonna yeah. fail. Yeah. And so, but some people have to quit at some point. But so it's always must have been. It's not like. You knew, oh, twenty years from now, I'm gonna hit the Forbes list of most paid comedians. You never really knew. So, what what was the most frustrating point during this period?
1: The when I was working uh, selling satellite dishes out of a kiosk in the in the mall. That's where it was. So that's uh, very in the beginning. Yeah. Well, that was in two. Yeah, that was in two thousand two two thousand three. So it was four or five years in. That was a kind of a low point for me. But past that, I never really looked back. It was never. I never went to bed going. gonna quit this this is awful it was always the comedy is what kept me alive if if I wasn't getting on stage I would be so much worse off than I was I mean I had that outlet to go up on stage and express my feelings night after night after night I didn't bottle them in I got them out and it was a way of uh, almost like therapy
0: so the passion somehow also gave you translated to perseverance yeah and so, even on like down, I mean, there, again, there must have been like down moments. Let's say in 2010, you—you was there any point where you say I've been doing this 12 years? Um, uh, I, I don't know if you were married then, or I'm getting married. Uh, uh, I need to do something. Something needs to click.
1: Did yeah, you, you always say that, but again, you could will this uh, shit to happen. It, it sometimes it just doesn't. It doesn't happen when you want it to, and that's why you have to keep staying hungry and wanting it more yeah you can meet a woman who goes you know what this comedy ain't working get a real job you can have that experience and maybe lose your your sight on the on the goal because there's all these external factors playing a huge role but thank God, I met a woman who is so supportive of, of what I was doing, and 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 100 behind me. Even my parents, you know, a lot of people get into this entertainment business; they got no support system. Mm. They're like, "Oh, what are you doing with this? You're never going to be nothing doing a comedian." My parents could have told me that. What are you doing, are you, comedian? Come on! But they 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 backed me, and they were uh, emotionally supportive, financially supportive, and. Uh, and and here I am, you know, and at the at the Four Seasons Hotel doing this. Even this even this uh, show that you do, I guarantee you, your audience doesn't know who I am, which is, excites me.
0: Well, and it's fascinating, and 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 we'll we'll close with that because uh, your story really is an incredible story in comedy, in that you you personally built up your audience. You kind of like I don't want to say you forced it to happen because obviously there's so much work and so much talent and, and skill that was developed, but you did it. There wasn't like you were leaning on um, network executives to to say, Sebastian, we're going to now put you in five movies and then you're going to sell at every stadium. Like you kind of did it person by person, which is a, which is not only unique, but also in, in inspiring in that that is, you know, a, that is, probably the traditional way to build a career is you doing it rather than being blessed from above. So congratulations on that. This book is excellent. I highly recommend it. Stay Hungry by Sebastian Maniscalco and uh, your specials on Showtime, your three specials on Showtime are fantastic. yeah. I'm going to check out your your Radio City Music Hall next month. Uh,
1: yeah, April April I'll be at Radio City, and and to your listeners, uh, I also have a podcast called the Pete and Sebastian Show that we do once a month on Sirius XM, right? Uh, yeah, and then it's also a podcast on Apple, so they could check out that if uh, I know your your listeners are big podcast people, and even even your listeners, if I could come on here today and get a, a few fans from from your your fan pool. To me, that is, is is well worth it because again, you never know. Some some people might be listening to this. Who's this guy? I, I, you know, I, I don't like him or what what have you. But there's always those people out there that don't know. We, me and my manager were talking about it today. I'm 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 flying underneath. There's a lot of people who don't know who the hell I am, which is great, and it means there's more out there.
0: Yeah, I think it's just gonna get bigger and bigger because you're already doing so well. It's just going to keep happening.
1: Yeah, no, it's good. I, I'm, I'm blessed and I, and I appreciate you having me uh, on the show to talk about the, the book and my career.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Sebastian. Thanks. You
1: got it. <laughs>